We begin by reading Romans 4, 9 to 15. Romans 4, 9 to 15. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. He was justified by faith in Christ before he was circumcised. And then, because of this fact, he's able to be the father of the faith for those who are uncircumcised and for those who are circumcised. That's the argument here in Romans 4, 9 to 15. We begin at verse 9. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the opportunity You've given us to gather as your people and to read and study your holy word. Lord, it is the true word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We thank you, Father, that we, by this word, are saved. We have assurance of our salvation and we have security in you because you do not lose any one of those whom you have saved. You do not lose any of your sheep any of your people, any of the elect. Thank you for this promise, and thank you that no matter what we experience in life, you are with us and you guide us. Father, we know that Abraham also experienced many trials in life, and he's an example for us, a reminder that we shall experience the same. As we learn from his example of faith, we pray that we will have the same faith no matter what our obstacles, no matter what is presented to us, we ask that you will help us to overcome. In the name of Christ, amen. In verse 9, the apostle, he begins by asking this question of the blessing. We, we remember that in chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, he mentions this blessing three times in reference to David. And not only did David experience it, but we also know, of course, that Abraham did. Abraham experiences blessing of being justified by faith in Christ. Though he was a sinner, though he was ungodly, at a point in his life, he was converted and he was converted by God's grace to him and the gift of faith to him, which faith he exercised in Christ to be saved from his sins to receive salvation, eternal life. This is how he was justified before God. Well, then the question arises, 
Does this blessing of justification only come to those who are circumcised? Does it only come to Jewish people or does it only come to Jewish males? Because um, even among the Jewish people, only the Jewish males are circumcised on the eighth day. Is this blessing of salvation only to Jewish males or is it for everyone? And then is it based on circumcision or is circumcision a seal or is circumcision a sign? Is circumcision something that is added to illustrate what has already happened in the human heart? And that's the argument of the apostle. Circumcision is not the basis of salvation, but it is, in verse 11, a sign and seal of salvation. It's a sign and seal. It's not the basis. It's not the reason for it. If it's not the basis or the reason for it, then it cannot be restricted to those who only practice that ritual to be circumcised, which means it's not exclusively for Jewish males. It's not exclusively for Jewish people. It's not exclusively even for Gentiles who are circumcised according to the Old Testament um, commandment in Genesis 17. It's not restricted to those who are circumcised. This point is a very important point because the Jewish people, the Jewish teachers, they were so bound up and so restricted in their thinking that they thought that practicing the ritual guarantees favor with God. And not only do the Jews think that way, but Gentiles think that way, that if we just do something that God told us to do, something external, some ritual, some ceremony, some action, if we just do that one thing, then we are acceptable in the sight of God. And this amounts to salvation by works. Works righteousness, works salvation. The apostle's argument here is that it doesn't work that way. It's not that way at all because God is never satisfied. God is never pleased with our, for our salvation to say, to require, if you, just, if you just do this one thing, then you'll be okay with me. It doesn't work that way. Because if it works that way, then it strips away our need to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again on our behalf. This is his argument already from chapter 3. He will continue with this argument. He picks it up in in the end of this chapter, 424. 424 to 25, he says, But for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. It is by the grace of God, which grace grants us faith in Jesus Christ that he died and rose again on our behalf. This central doctrine is throughout all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. If we compromise on any part of that doctrine, we are compromising on the gospel. We're compromising on salvation. We're compromising on eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We are compromising, and we are therefore undermining the gospel. That's why we stress that from Adam until the end of the world, anybody who's saved is saved by grace through faith in Christ. 
It cannot be any other way. Now, let's see how the apostle argues his case from verse 9 about this blessing of salvation. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? Is it for the uncircumcised also? We know what he means. The circumcised are the Jews and the uncircumcised are the Gentiles. Because generally speaking, Jews uh, practice circumcision and generally speaking, not exclusively speaking, but generally speaking, Gentiles do not practice circumcision. That's the way of the, the world or the customs of the world. Verse 9, is it only for the circumcised? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Now he introduces to explain his argument the necessity of faith. So we have to ask, why in the world does the Bible emphasize that faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness? Why would that assertion be made in reference to Abraham, the father of the faithful? Why would it be mentioned there that faith is necessary or the basis of being reckoned as righteous if circumcision is such a big deal? You see, the two have to be understood together harmoniously, not allowing for circumcision to undermine faith in Christ. It cannot be that way. And then he argues why it cannot be that way with Abraham himself. Verse 10. Verse 10. How then was it reckoned? How then was it reckoned? How, what were the circumstances? We have to ask ourselves, what were the circumstances with Abraham since he is the prime example? How was it reconciled, reckoned to him? What were his circumstances or situation? What was it? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Then he answers his own question. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. If our great example is Abraham, Abraham was reckoned righteous when he was uncircumcised. Then what's the big deal? If God doesn't change in his ways of salvation, if God's character does not change, his nature does not change, and his expectations of salvation do not change, then... We have to see how it happened with Abraham. Not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. Think about that. In verse 11, he introduces the sign and seal of the sign of circumcision, right? So let's think about it for a moment. When was circumcision started? When was it instituted? When was it? In what chapter of the book of Genesis? It was in the book of Genesis, chapter 17. Chapter 17. That's when this sign of circumcision began, right? Genesis chapter 17. Let's find our way there to Genesis 17. And note... 
Before Genesis 17, we have Genesis 11 to 16. At the end of Genesis 11, Abraham is introduced. By chapter 12, we are told how, Abraham, how old Abraham was when he entered the land of Canaan. It says in 12 verse 4 that he was 75 years old. So from chapters 11 to 16... He's at least 75 years old. And then at the end of chapter 16, we are told that Abraham, in Genesis 16, 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 86 years old, which means 11 years have passed from the time he entered Canaan to the time Ishmael was born. Was Abraham circumcised when Ishmael was born at the age of 86? No. In chapter 17, God introduced a circumcision starting at verse 9, 9 to 21. He introduces the need for circumcision in Abraham's obedience to God and even Abraham's descendants and even Abraham's household for their obedience to God. He introduces it. In 17, 9 to 21. Then after Abraham receives this commandment to circumcise himself and others, we pick it up at verse 22. 17, 22. And when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And in the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. And all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So what happens here? What happens here? Abraham was 99 years old. He was 75 when he entered Canaan, 86 when Ishmael was born, and then 99 years old when he was circumcised. And we note later from chapter 25 that he lived to be 175 years old. So in the middle of his life is when he was circumcised. And even, relatively speaking, in the middle of his life of faith, he was circumcised. He went about 25 years at least or 24 years at least, in faith, being uncircumcised. Therefore, circumcision was not necessary for Abraham's salvation, correct? Or Abraham's right standing before God. It was not necessary. That's the argument of the apostle. Okay, then, Romans 4, 11. 4, 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while 
uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who are also uh, who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision. That is, he received the commandment directly from God to practice circumcision. Now, he calls it in verse 11, a sign He calls it a sign. Now, the sign is signifying something. The sign illustrates something. The sign is a visible display of something, right? But it's not the reality. The reality is what happened in his heart. The reality is that he has now a new heart. The reality is he was saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's the reality. The circumcision is a sign of that. It signifies that that truth, that reality has happened to him. It's a sign. That's what he calls it. He doesn't call it the basis of salvation. He calls it a sign. The sign which is circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of that God instituted with Abraham. Then he calls it, verse 11, a seal. A seal of the righteousness of the faith. A seal of the righteousness of the faith. So now a seal. Is a seal, when we're talking about a document, is the seal of the document the content of the document? Or is it a display of the internal importance and reality of the document? It's the latter, right? The seal of a document is that which shows the gravity, the the unchangeableness, the solemnity, the importance of what's inside the document. And what's inside in this document, in this case, the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. It is, therefore, a seal of righteousness. The righteousness already happened. It already happened. Therefore, it cannot be the basis of his salvation. And further, he states, he had this faith which he had Uh, while uncircumcised, verse 11. We cannot underemphasize this point that this faith was while Abraham was uncircumcised. It's quite obvious. It's obvious in the chapters of the book of Genesis. It's obvious in the chronology of the book of Genesis. It's obvious in the things that happened in the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis that he was already a man of faith before chapter 17. After all, the, the verse that is often quoted in this chapter, chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Uh, 
Verse 9, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. Further, in verse 22, 22 and 23, therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him. It's also quoted in Galatians 3 and James chapter 2. Now, if this is the case with Abraham, it happened in Genesis 15, 6. Genesis 15, 6 is where we find this verse that Paul is quoting here in Romans chapter 4, 15, 6. And if that's the case, it shows that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith in the Lord was reckoned as righteousness. There's no way to undo, there's no way to tear apart or destroy this very tight argument of the Apostle Paul. Why is this so important? If we understand this, if we understand his argument here, which he repeats elsewhere, such as in the book of Galatians, if we understand this argument, it will give us the central truths of the gospel that cannot be ever undermined, cannot ever be misinterpreted, cannot never be distorted. And the moment we do so, we become a false teacher. We become a heretic because we fail to understand the necessity of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. That's why it's so important, and that's why he elaborates in this chapter, chapter 4. Further, who is going to benefit? Now he emphasizes that point. Who benefits from this? Why is it important in Abraham's sequence of events? Verse 11. Verse 11. In the middle of the verse, he says that, or so that, or in order that. When we see such a conjunction, when we see such a conjun- uh, conjunction, it's explaining the purpose, the purpose. Why did God orchestrate the events of Abraham's life, even in reference to faith and circumcision, the sequence of events? Why did he orchestrate it, appoint it, ordain it in Abraham's life in that way? It says in verse 11, that, so that, in order that he, Abraham, might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. The father of all who believe without being circumcised, which includes you and me. It includes you and me. It it includes male and female. It includes people from all nations of the world, whoever believes in Jesus Christ that righteousness might be reckoned to them. We also might benefit. We also benefit like this. That's what he said in verse 22. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why is the scripture saying this? Verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, was, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions 
and was raised because of our justification. This is in Scripture, and it's repeated this way. It's clearly explained this way for our benefit. Not just to use Abraham as a model, but for Abraham to be a model for all of us so that we might benefit. And we benefit when we understand it correctly and believe it. Verse 12. Not only all who believe without being circumcised, but also, verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. That's in order to include Jews too. He's the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. He's including Jews and Gentiles. He's including now Jews because Jews are apt to thinking that because they are connected in lineage, genealogically, through the bloodline with Abraham, therefore their salvation is guaranteed. Because Abraham is our ancestor through genealogy, therefore we are saved. There is nothing more for us. We are the favored people of God, chosen people of God to be saved eternally because we belong to Abraham as our, as our ancestor. That's not true. That's the argument he's making in this chapter. That's not true at all. And if we were to illustrate, could we not do so in the Old Testament? What about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, are there not plenty of illustrations that show that those who were in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, plenty of people, both individuals and groups, who never believed, yet they were circumcised because they all practice circumcision? Are there not many examples? Can we call out a few examples? King Saul. King Saul. He was a man. He was even a king from the tribe of Benjamin. That's right. King Saul. Who else? Esau. 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 Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And they were the offspring of Isaac and Rebekah. And yet Esau was not saved. And for those of you who might doubt that, Romans chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 12 shows for sure that there's no salvation for Esau. Okay? And then, who else? Any other examples? Amnon who raped Tamar. Amnon who raped Tamar. Yes, that's correct. 2 Samuel 13, that occurs. Ahab. Okay, since we're speaking of Ahab also, Ahab and Jezebel, right? Now, Jezebel also, she was the daughter of a of a foreign king. Um, but in the case of Ahab and Jezebel, they were both wicked and they influenced the people to be very wicked in the northern kingdom called Israel. And any reading of the book of Kings will show that all 
any, even any casual reading of the book of Kings will show that all of the northern kings, and Ahab was one of them, all of the 20 northern kings were evil kings. Isn't that what happens? When a king is introduced in the beginning of his reign or the length of his reign is introduced, and then there's going to be a paragraph or a chapter or a few chapters narrating the events of that king's reign, right? Like King Ahab. What are we told off the bat? We're told whether they are good or evil. And in the case of the 12 uh, or the 20 kings of the northern kingdom, they're all evil. But they're all kings. They're all important people. They're all wealthy men, right? They're all circumcised men from the northern tribes. So it doesn't guarantee anything. And that is why we have so many examples. Illustration after illustration that we have to be saved by faith in Christ. Not, what's that? Even the Pharisees. The Pharisees were circumcised. The Sadducees were circumcised. The Herodians were circumcised. Judas Iscariot was circumcised. Yes, right? They all were circumcised, so it doesn't guarantee anything. Now, the illustration for us is it shows that it's quite or very important that just as the Jews fell into that trap, we could also fall into that trap. And today within Christianity, what is the one ritual or even two rituals that people use to say that these are the basis or the guarantee, the assurance of our salvation? Okay, actually, that's, that's an additional one. I wasn't thinking of that initially. I was thinking of rituals, okay? But you said they sign a card. They, they sign a card, right? And these days, they even text. They text the pastor. They, they text, they sign a card. They go to the altar, right? They raise their hand. They say a prayer. They do those kinds of things. But the two biblical rituals, baptism, baptism immersion in water, and the Lord's Supper. They think that when they are baptized, they are saved. And when they partake of the Lord's Supper, they maintain their salvation. Because if they were, for whatever reason, to miss it or to skip it, then they would go to hell or go to purgatory. Something like that. That's the way they think. People think that way in terms of the rituals. The rituals are important to the extent that they truly illustrate what's going on in our own heart. But they are not the basis of our salvation. Our salvation is only in Christ. Okay, then, verses 13 to 15. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Is it on the basis of keeping the law or not? If it is on the basis of keeping the law, he says, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Promises are based on faith. Promises are not based on law. And what's his argument? 
It's not because of law-keeping. It's not on the basis of law-keeping. Now, if he means law-keeping in reference to the rituals of the law, that's quite obvious. That's his argument so far, right? It's not based on the rituals of the law. For example, what about the, the festivals of Israel instituted by Moses? What about the festivals of Israel instituted by Moses? Or in an extreme case, what about the festival of the Feast of Purim, which not even Moses instituted? But that was through Esther and Mordecai in the book of Esther. The Feast of Purim, Moses did not even institute that. Was it on the basis of ceremonies such as those festivals? No, because they happened many years later. Moses lived 500 years after Abraham. Abraham, 2000 BC. Moses, about 1500 BC. There's no way Abraham was saved on the basis of festivals and rituals. No way. So faith and law, ritualistic law, are at odds with each other if you want to say it's the basis of salvation. They are contradictory. They fight each other. They're in conflict with each other. That cannot work. But what if he meant here the law meaning the Ten Commandments? Was Abraham saved on the basis of obeying the Ten Commandments or his faithfulness to the Ten Commandments? No. That is impossible too for Abraham to be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. For who is able to keep the Ten Commandments? In heart and actions faithfully. Nobody, nobody is able to do so in his heart, in his mind, or even in his obedience. Nobody's able to do so faithfully until death. It's impossible. Therefore, the moment we say the law is the basis, we make it contradict faith. Furthermore, what is the purpose of the law? Verse, four, uh, verse 15. For the law brings about wrath. The law brings about wrath. What's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the moral law in the Ten Commandments? And even what's the purpose of the ritual law, the ceremonies? It is to convict us for the wrath of God to be meted out against us to convict us of our inability to keep them. Because whether it's the Ten Commandments and our inability, therefore we disobey and we deserve the wrath of God, or the rituals, because even the Jews did not perfectly keep all of the rituals. It was impossible for them to perfectly keep all of the rituals. So God's wrath was against them for disobedience. Right? So the law's purpose is to bring about wrath. For the law brings about wrath. Its purpose is to establish our inability so that we believe in Christ. That's the whole purpose of it. He says in chapter 5, verse 20. 5, verse 20. The law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through faith, uh, excuse me, 
So grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And in 319 and 20, the purpose of the law, 319. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law's purpose is to describe our sin and to condemn us for our sin, so that when we do read the law, those parts that explain life in Christ, we might believe in Christ, which is also found in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy. Life in Christ is preached there too. The law's purpose, expose our sin, and once we know our sin, then believe in what the law says as the remedy for our sin, which is faith in Jesus Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.